Welcome to Live Talk, a weekly radio talk style show exclusively produced by Pituitary World News. Our subject today is uh, interesting. We're going to talk about um, endocrine tests and normal ranges within the endocrine tests. And then we have a guest, Pat Gilroy, which I will introduce later from uh, the group GOT-DI, or Diabetes Insipidus. So, uh, hello, Dr. Blevins. How are you today? I'm doing very well, Jorge. How about yourself? I'm doing great. Thank you. Uh, Good. Uh, so yeah. excited about our second show. This is our second show. If you didn't catch our first show, it was with Dr. Aggie, and we have a recording on Pituitary World News that you can hear it. And you'll be able to hear uh, the recording um, from this show, um, probably available tomorrow. Yeah, I think this is going to be a fascinating show, and we're so happy to have Pat with us today. Yeah, anyway, yeah, thank you. So let's talk about, uh, let's get started with our first subject, which is um, the, the subject of uh, uh, normal uh, uh, ranges with endocrine tests. And uh, I guess my first question is, how do you, t do you determine um, what is a normal range in an endocrine test? Very good question, and uh, a lot of people wonder uh, how that's determined. For most of the tests we do, uh, the, t uh, the assays are all done very differently to check for certain protein or steroid hormones in the bloodstream, uh, but generally speaking, a normal range is defined by a normal population or people who don't have a disease, and you take everybody's results and then create a bell-shaped curve and you take the mean which is the middle and then two standard deviations on either side of the mean it's actually 1.96 but we'll round it to two and then that encompass, encompasses the normal range so for example if we were looking at IGF-1 for your age it would be the mean plus 1.96 standard deviations on each side of it by definition for most laboratory testing this is thyroid hormone TSH uh, probably um, IGF-1, prolactin, etc. The normal range is such that you're going to have 2.5% of people who are high but still normal and 2.5% of people who are low but still normal. We'll often get consultations for people who have high IGF-1s but they don't have acromegaly, there's no pituitary tumor and we think that they're probably one of the people who are simply above the normal range but that's normal for them. So that's an important concept to understand. Uh, some normal ranges are a standard bell-shaped curve or distribution. Some are a skewed distribution where the mean might be in the lower part of the normal range. TSH is a good example for that, where the, uh, the normal range for TSH is 0.5 to 4.5, but the mean is really around 1.5, not in the middle of that normal range. So that's a skewed distribution. Other normal ranges seem to be based on studies of disease to figure out where do people with disease have certain hormone levels. For example, prolactin. Uh, I firmly believe that the prolactin cutoffs are chosen not necessarily based on the normal distribution, but also on where do we start seeing patients who have disease. Uh, and certainly when we talk about dynamic stimulation tests, we have cutoffs that are that are definitely based on what is the best combination of what we call sensitivity and specificity to determine where a disease exists versus, versus a disease does not. So that's how some normal ranges are defined. Um, the interesting thing is that um, even though there's a normal range for the population, everybody has their own little normal range for themselves. Classic example of that is some studies looking at thyroid hormone where if you measured the T4 level or the T3 level or even the TSH um, and if you did repeated measures in the same person uh, you would have a very finite normal distribution or skewed distribution for their results somewhere in the normal range and the same thing is true for most hormones as well. So for example if the normal range for T4, depending on the assay, is about 0.8 to 1.7. Some people are supposed to be at 1.0, others are supposed to be at 1.5. And if someone has a result that's different than that, 
what their normal range is, they can still have a normal level but be abnormal. I saw a patient today, a classic example of that. She had thyroid function tests done every year for the past two to three years. Her T4 levels and T3 levels were normal and TSH was normal. Today, she had T4 and T3 that were lower than they were before, but still normal. But her TSH level, which was previously normal, is now four times what it was beforehand. So she clearly has primary hypothyroidism. And some physicians would look at her labs and say, well, we don't know why your TSH is high, but your T4 and T3 are normal, so let's not treat you. But to me, she has fatigue and she deserves treatment. So this is an example where you have to sometimes interpret the normal range based on another test. And the good news is about endocrine feedback loops, we can use a pituitary hormone to look at target glands and vice versa, target gland hormones to look at the pituitary function. So sometimes you have to interpret the tests within the spectrum of what the pituitary is telling you. In this example, it's a patient who was supposed to have a T4 level much higher than she did. Now it's too low, so her TSH rose to try to beat the thyroid into submission to make more thyroid hormone. So that's another example of how uh, people really sit in their own normal range. Another one was a patient that I saw last week who has uh, Cushing syndrome and was markedly Cushingoid with urine cortisols in the in the 30 to 40 range, which is in the normal range. But she was suffering. We knew she had a pituitary tumor, had partial resection, and uh, she was very ill, very sick, very Cushingoid with levels in the 30 to 40 range. So when we treated her and drove her cortisol levels down to around 20, she started to feel better and started to do better. And, and we had a discussion recently in, uh, in which we reviewed that somewhere between 10 and 15 is her optimal cortisol level where she feels the best and feels healthier and she's started to have significant recovery from her Cushingoid features. The normal range for cortisol is five to 45 for a urine cortisol. So other doctors would have told her, but your levels are normal. I don't know why you're so Cushingoid. To me, it's she was higher than her normal range. So her normal range is around 10 to 15 and we have to treat her with medication to find her own normal range. And it's one of the principles of endocrinology that I like to follow is that you have to find the patient's true normal range to make sure that uh, uh, you're treating them appropriately either with hormone replacement or with drugs that inhibit hormone secretion. Uh, one other thing I did wanna talk about with laboratory testing, and this comes up with the patient I saw today, he looked at his thyroid hormone levels and notice that his T4 was 1.5 a year ago, now it's 1.4, and he was concerned that it was falling. What we know about thyroid function tests and any of these hormones, uh, if you will, any assay basically, is that there's what's called an inter and an intra-assay coefficient of variation. And basically what that means is that if you have a patient who, um, you take a blood sample and measured that same tube of blood in different uh, assays on the same day, you could get about a 20% difference on the same tube of blood, and that's the, the coefficient of variation. And if you had the same sample run over, uh, or checked the same blood sample different days, you'd see the same, because uh, of the, the fact that there is some variability in hormone secretion. But to an endocrinologist, we tend to sort of look at numbers as absolutes, but we also eyeball them. So a, a difference of 0.1 really is not a significant change. That's within the realm of what we call the coefficient of variation. This is also important in patients with acromegaly, where we look at their IGF-1 level, and one time it's 170, another time it's 190. That doesn't mean the tumor's growing or it's getting worse. That's within the variation of the test itself. And if you took that same sample that was 190 and measured it 10 times on the same tube of blood, you may have a range that varies by 20%. So um, a, a coefficient of, of uh, what did you call it, coefficient of, of variation Variation yeah. is like a standard error that's in it's sampling. A, so exactly. th there is a study, right. the study has built-in bias of a percentage of error either way that it's you built take into in, consideration. Yeah, it's built-in error by virtue of the fact of how these assays are done. Uh, when I was in my fellowship training at Johns Hopkins, we actually had some research studies where we were learning to do radioimmunoassay to be able to do our own tests and not have to send them to the lab. And I can't tell you how arduous that process was to learn the proper way to do the test. 
not only to yeah. learn to pipette, but also how to count the tubes and terminate the reaction and things like that. And uh, I had to do it 500 times to be able to get the coefficient of variation to what my research uh, uh, instructor at the time uh, Dr. Gary Wan wanted from me to be able to say your results are valid for publication and uh, you know so that was a really important lesson to actually do these assays and to see how when you think you're doing the same thing over and over from one test tube to the next you actually have different results uh, and it really really taught me early on the um, what, what coefficient of variation was all about and uh, how not to sort of look at a slight change in a number, say a cortisol 17 one time and, and 12 the next. That's really, you know, partly related to the way cortisol secreted, but in part related to the assay too. Have you ever had a case where, let's say, a test uh, result was so unusually low or high outside that standard deviation where it later became obvious that it was a normal range for that patient that was so outside of the norm, mm -hmm. let's say? I have seen some patients with very high IGF-1 levels that uh, turn out to just be normal for them, and you know, I, and we'll talk about this at another another uh, radio show. But sometimes you you have to make sure you have the right assay done, and IGF-1 is one of those where there are different assays, different laboratories, and some labs always seem to estimate high, where others are more reliable. Uh, but even in patients who've had the Quest assay that I believe in, I've seen, wow, that's a pretty high number, but this is normal for this particular person and, mm -hmm. uh, and seems to be just where their set point is. They're one of the outliers, if you will, that 2.5% that's just high but still normal. One of the things that I will mention uh, here, just because it popped into my mind, is that you can see what we call spurious laboratory results, and spurious results are results that are sort of unexpected or a surprise and usually an error. Uh, and some examples of those are some people with, uh, who've done research working with laboratory mice, for example, can develop anti-TSH antibodies that can affect TSH measurements. Uh, people taking biotin, uh, which seems to be the supplement of the year, so to speak. Of choice. Uh, yeah, everybody's taking it now. Biotin actually interferes with a number of different laboratory tests, so we now tell people that if you're on biotin, stop it for two to three weeks so we can get your laboratory studies obtained. Uh, we have seen a rash of people who've had elevated T3 levels uh, lately in our lab. I think there's something wrong with the T3 assay. <laughs> Uh, but it may be that some of these people are on biotin as well and they just didn't admit it or didn't stop their medicine beforehand. Uh, but occasionally you will see that there, the a laboratory will start doing an assay a different way and suddenly you get results that don't make sense and you have to work with the lab to try to change the assay or figure out what the problem is because maybe it's a technique because some of these assays do vary enough to where they have to learn the new assay in that setting. I had the bottom line... I hadn't Pardon? realized that my uh, multiple vitamin has biotin in it. It never occurred to me, and finally I looked, and oh. I said, okay, have to stop that before my blood tests. Yeah, exactly. The multivitamins are the big culprit. Some people take biotin by itself with about 10 other vitamins, but multivitamins, that, that amount of biotin is enough to interfere with the assays. Bottom line is a normal range is a population-based thing. The tests aren't perfect. Uh, as endocrinologists, we often look at a gestalt and we try to look and see uh, whether or not patients have other things that either increase or decrease the likelihood of a disease being present. Uh, a classic example of that is growth hormone deficiency. So an IGF-1 level can be normal, but a patient can still have growth hormone deficiency because if they're at 130, maybe they're supposed to be at 250. Yeah. Uh, so we have to do a stimulation test to sort that out. But it's an example of, uh, we don't know where that patient's normal range is supposed to be. Once you have a disease, that's a problem. If you show up with a pituitary tumor, I don't know what your IGF-1 is supposed to be when I treat your acromegaly. Or if you have hypothyroidism, I don't know what your T4 is supposed to be. So we treat, we try to get the level into the middle of the normal range uh, and uh, try to uh, see if you feel better or worse. If you don't fully feel well, then we try to uh, increase the dose to what I call optimized therapy. So I don't push everybody in their part of the normal range because some people are going to get either hyperthyroid or too much cortisol or whatever if you try to push it too hard. So you have to combine your history and physical 
and the the history being what are the patient's symptoms on treatment? Are they better or worse, the same? Uh, do they have symptoms of too much or too little? And you look at that in conjunction with the laboratory result to figure out what that patient's true normal might be. So it's such a, for the layperson, seems uh, so, so complicated because it sounds like what you're constantly <coughs> doing as you talk about all these tests and normal ranges is trying to balance somebody's yeah. you know, endocrine system. So everything seems to be working okay. And sometimes these numbers make sense, as I hear you saying. And sometimes yeah. you have to adjust it so it doesn't make sense. It makes sense with everything else that you're looking at, like how the person yeah. is feeling. or uh, It's very interesting. One of the, one of the um, I would say, positive things, but also partly negative things about uh, patients having full access to their charts in their laboratories, because at our institution you can see all your labs. Oh, yeah, sure. Is the complexities of interpretation of results, and patients don't understand why is this out of range? We have, what can we do to fix this problem? I want to understand this and... Uh, and fix it. How can we remedy this situation where, you know, in, in many patients with hypopituitarism, all the pituitary hormones are low, uh, but we've got the target glands where we want them to be based on testosterone replacement or what have you. Uh, and um, patients don't understand those other numbers aren't going to fix, and it leads to a ton of questions, and we spend a lot of time on that. Uh, I kind of like the old days of uh, giving the patient the interpretation and moving on, uh, but patients really want to try to understand what's going on and uh, to try to to get a grasp on some of these things. And uh, I'm not going to say the questions are irrelevant because it's their laboratory data and they deserve to understand. And we certainly like to take the time to explain because we're educating people about their disease and their physiology. But the stuff that we're talking about to people who are lay people, and I know people with disease are much more advanced than the usual lay person uh, through their knowledge and reading and things like that. But still, it takes a lot of time as an endocrine fellow or an endocrine trainee to understand some of these concepts we're trying to gloss over at the end of a very busy visit sometimes. I do my best because I think my best students are my patients. You know, I like to educate people and leave them with a better understanding of what we're seeing and what's in front of them. Yeah. So, um, I think this may be a good time, as, unless you want to cover anything else on on these on these uh, uh, test issues and endocrine test issues, it would be a good time to introduce Pat. No. Yeah, we'll cover uh, throughout the, our radio series and some of our podcasts. We'll cover certain elements of this in greater detail as we talk about specific disease states. But I think you're right. Let's talk about uh, the uh, topic at hand today. Yeah, that's great. Okay, well, so let us uh, let, let let us introduce Pat Gildro and Pat. Welcome to our show. It's a pleasure to it's a pleasure to have you here. Why don't you tell us um, a little bit about yourself and and what you do and how you're connected with uh, with uh, all of this endocrine and pituitary disease and and uh, right. everything else. Yeah, so welcome. Well, I've been in the field of education for thirty four years. Uh, and I've been retired for three years, so it gives me a little bit more time to work on it these days. But um, as an educator and somebody who loves to learn, um, once when I when I became pregnant with my son, who's now going to be forty, um, I never got my period after I gave birth, and the doctor kept saying, "Oh, it's stress. Seven years of stress. That's why I didn't have my period." So anyway, um, finally somebody said, um, maybe there's something else going on and I think you have a prolactinoma. And so they did testing for that and um, I was about to leave to go study for my PhD in education and um, I kept getting these headaches. And so I went to have an MRI and they said, oh, you have something pressing on your optic nerve so we better take it out now. I said, okay. And my surgeon said, oh, piece of cake, not a problem. Just go in, pop it out. If you have any problems, you might have diabetes insipidus, but you just take a pill. It'll be fine. So after the surgery, he popped it out. And um, a few days later, I was really, really, really thirsty. And I hardly could leave the bathroom um, because my 
I ended up with diabetes insipidus. Mm. And so diabetes insipidus is where you release between three liters of urine to over 20 liters of urine per day, and you have to make up that amount of fluid to be able to keep your body in balance, to keep your blood and your electrolytes in the proper range. Um, well, he told me, you know, here, take this spray and take it twice a day. Well, I was used to nasal sprays where you do each nostril. So I did each nostril twice a day, which what led me to having too much fluid in my body. It kept the desmopressin, the medication that we have to use, is excellent. It gives us a normal life, but if you take too much of it, it keeps all of the fluids in your body and you can't release them. So you have to learn how to consciously monitor what you take in and make sure that you release the extra fluid by having something called breakthrough, which is a medical term for when the medication wears off. So I learned early on about the importance of learning how to manage diabetes insipidus and the medication. Um, and at the time, the internet was pretty young. It was 1995. And I found one little mommy, mom someplace that had started a little group for diabetes insipidus. So I joined that. And then through the years, I kept looking for other forums. And um, 13 years ago, because of my work as a um, member of Got Diabetes Insipidus, the Facebook group, I was asked mm -hmm. to be an administrator. And being an administrator, and we have, we have 4,500 members worldwide, and we keep growing um, rather quickly, especially now that um, COVID is waning and there are more opportunities for doctor's appointments. Um, so we get stories from people all over the world about not knowing what to do because they can't leave the bathroom and they're so thirsty and they can't sleep and what do they do? And so um, what I've done is I've taken on the um, task, the caring task of trying to coach people in how do you go about figuring out what it is that you have, um, what are some of the simple things that you can do, like monitoring your urine output, monitoring your um, fluid intake for 24 hours to get a sense of what kind of issues that you're facing. You take that information to the doctor, because doctors yeah. like data, don't they? <laughs> so take yes. these charts to the doctor and say, look, this is what's going on with me in 24 hours, and I'm living my life like this. Can you help me figure it out? And, and we also coach them on what kind of tests that they would be expecting for the diagnostic process. Um, and then once they're diagnosed, unfortunately not very many patients are advised about the importance of figuring out how to monitor um, desmopressin, the medication, and their diabetes insipidus. So normally what the body does, and in all animals, it's wonderful, um, mm. Normally, the body is really able to control the amount of fluid that's there. If there's not enough fluid, we get thirsty. If there's too much fluid, we're running to the loop. Um, but when we take this medication that allows us not to be running to the loo repeatedly, <laughs> it, you know, for that's your life, you're running to the loo. Um, so when we take this medication, it holds all the fluids in. And so that's what we need to do to break through is what keeps us from, from diluting our blood and getting into trouble. Anyway, so I um, have continued to look at research articles. I've continued to, when members bring up different issues, associated issues with diabetes insipidus, I do a little bit of research on that. I'm a teacher. I'm not a medical, I don't have a medical background. My husband is a biochemist, which helps. And um, Dr. Lewis Blevins has been most kind and has been a resource for diabetes insipidus. Um, thank you so much. You have allowed me to send you some articles, get feedback on different tests, on some specific cases, um, and even helping us to do an international survey on diabetes patients. So. So anyway, that's how I became involved, and I continue to be involved, and I want to, I'm reaching out to some other organizations that have 
members, uh, these are rare medical conditions, but they have members in these groups that have diabetes insipidus, and I'm trying to help them to learn more about the importance of understanding what the difficulties can be. That's, yeah, that's really interesting uh, um, uh, with, with, I think, with the diabetes insipidus being a, 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 a sign or a symptom of other diseases as well, and how that cross uh, 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 knowledge between groups, you know, and uh, I know that there have been several groups that have picked up a lot of the um, content uh, for, for diabetes insipidus that's on Pituitary World News. The histiocytosis group, which we're collaborating with a couple, a couple of initiatives, and now the, the uh, ECD group uh, or EDC group, extern, um, I can never remember its complicated <laughs> name, uh, but, uh, you know, a very interesting um, uh, uh, opportunity here to get the word out. Well, I, I really love and appreciate the things that you do. I, as I reflect on your story, the understatement of this century, though, was your doctor telling you you might get diabetes insipidus, you just have to take a pill, right? Yeah. <laughs> uh, because that is like uh, an invisible scratch on the surface of the, of the, of the uh, broken window, right? It's like there's a lot more to it than that, as a you have known. And, have learned about that, and that's that's one of the things that that sort of concerns me is that I don't even remember in medical school being taught about diabetes insipidus. I'm sure that I was, but it probably was glossed over in physiology or pathophysiology or something like that. And I remember seeing a patient in my residency who actually had diabetes insipidus and didn't wear a medical alert bracelet, found unresponsive, came to the hospital, had large amounts of urine output also had adrenal insufficiency, didn't get steroids, ended up dying of shock and dehydration because yeah. he wasn't wearing a medical alert bracelet. So we'd encourage everybody to wear a bracelet if you have DI or somehow something to notify people that that's what you have if you're unconscious, can't give a history and, and a responder gets you to a hospital. And then I, I remember it was really, um, I was interviewing for the position at Hopkins and one of my dear friends was a fellow a year ahead of me and he was doing a presentation on diabetes insipidus and it was really the you know i was two and a half years through my internal medicine training before it's like wow that's a fascinating disorder i think i can maybe try to understand this but it wasn't until i was an actual fellow and i got called to see a patient that the neurosurgeons wanted to send home but he wouldn't go home he had a history of a craniopharyngioma and they had operated and i i i went by the bed, the patient wasn't there. Looked, didn't see him, so I went to the to the nurse's desk to review his chart. And the neurosurgery residents were writing sodium 145, no DI, day after day after day. Read through the chart, went to the patient's bedside, knowing that this was the area where the bedside chart with intake and output was kept uh, on the uh, on the bedside chart at the and hanging on the edge of the bed. And uh, the nurses were putting for his urine output approximate 20 liters, and um, the um, intake was unknown. So I heard something in the bathroom. So I knocked on the door, and this guy says yes. And I opened the door, and there's a man urinating with one hand, and he had hooked a surgical tube to the faucet of the sink up with the other hand, and we had ping with one hand <laughs> the hose to his mouth with the other. And, uh, you know, he was peeing into the jug and he had four jugs and he was changing jugs as soon as he filled one up. And uh, he said, I haven't slept in four days. I have some problem. They want to send me home. I told him I'm not going till they figure this out. It was diabetes insipidus, 20 liters a day, just as you said. And, uh, and he was unable to sleep. We gave him a dose of azopressin. He slept 18 hours uh, and uh, was able to get him on treatment. But uh, that, that really got my attention. Uh, as, to, as to DI and of course over my career I've seen literally thousands of people with DI and, and helped them understand the different caveats and nuances of treatment and things like that. But our biggest group of people to educate are physicians and I know that you are spearheading a, a group of people to try to sort of make an impact and a dent in that arena of educating people. And uh, so 
What's so the term diabetes means passage of large amounts of urine. Diabetes mellitus is passage of large amounts of sweet urine. Insipidus is passage of large amounts of dilute urine. So tell us some of the problems that you've you've seen or heard of with the term diabetes insipidus. Confusing, no? It is to say the and, least. And frequently, um, you know, it's it's it would be unexpected if when I go in to see my endocrinologist, if I'm not asked to show them my um, glucose levels, you know? <laughs> and I go, no, it's not that kind. Um, it really doesn't have to do with diabetes mellitus. It's something completely different. Um, and what is most concerning is that people in the medical community just don't understand it. And we've been trying to get the name changed because not only do they, and it, we need all, we need EMTs, we need nurses, we need CNAs, we need physicians, we need everybody to recognize what it is because when we need fluids, when we need our medication, we need that. It's like you're crawling across the desert and trying to get water, you know, it, it's, it, you can't think of anything else. It's a primary need and it must be taken care of. And so many times it's not taken care of because they don't understand what it is. They don't understand the intensity of the needs and they don't understand how dangerous can be. Um, so one of the things that um, we're trying to do is to change the name from diabetes insipidus to another name and <laughs> There have been a few surveys and the over of patients and the overwhelming desire is please change the name. Um, we're trying to figure out what name to change it to and um, I, think, I think we came up with one. Um, and the, the hormone that we're missing is called vasopressin or another name for it is antidiuretic hormone. Antidiuretic means that um, it doesn't release fluids, it keeps fluids. So antidiuretic hormone is what we're missing. So we release fluids. Anyway, it's, it's got an initial ADH. People in the medical mu community know what ADH is. Nurses know, CNAs know, EMTs know, because there are other conditions that have ADH issues. So we're trying to change the name from diabetes insipidus to ADH deficiency. So we're missing that hormone that allows our bodies to keep fluids. And if we can get, I, I mentioned that to my son, He's, he is the um, president of the local union of nurses. Um, and I said, could you do a little survey, you know, and see what would work? And he said, well, I don't know what AVP is, but I know what ADH is. And ADH deficiency, that tells me what's going on with you, Mom. And I went, all right. Mm -hmm. So I think that we hit on something that's going to be really useful. And I think that, um, and as Dr. Blevins, you have suggested, that as patients, we can start a movement to get the name changed so that it not only um, helps to reduce the confusion, but that it also helps to <coughs> indicate what the actual issue is. So we're going to start that grassroots with Got Diabetes Insipidus. We'll have to change the name, of course. <laughs> I was going to suggest that you're going to have to, yeah, have to change the name of your group. In parentheses, um, but we, yeah. we're having, we're developing a plan to um, do lots of Google searches for diabetes insipidus and also put ADH deficiency in the search so that they cross so that there's a lot more matching of those terms and so that we can start to get it through the internet because it's critical that if you have a new name that you're still able to pull up the resources that have mm -hmm. been previously under diabetes insipidus because that's critical information. So I'm, I'm curious, it sounds like you've asked uh, patients for suggestions and names or you haven't yes. done that. Yeah. So I'm curious to hear some of the names that were coming back. That's always fun to hear. Uh, vasopressin, vasopressin um, insipidus. Um, we tried, we tried arginine vasopressin deficiency, but that didn't go over very well because that's AVD, and we don't mm -hmm. want to tell anybody that we have 
AVD. No, you can um, get more confusion. Yeah, and you get sent off to the wrong clinic. Um, I'm yeah. just trying to think of what some of the other names. Those were some of the top names. Um, but you know, but it's yeah, name uh, uh, naming in marketing is one of those uh, things that is very much uh, in vogue today uh, with people that actually specialize in in coming up with these names. And if you watch uh, the morning news, you see one commercial after the other with the most ridiculous sounding drug names you've ever <laughs> or disease names. Mm -hmm. you, say, you wonder where they're coming up with these names. <laughs> Uh, so <laughs> it's yeah. uh, it's pretty interesting. Um, uh, well, you know, I, I think it would be also fun uh, to participate in this, and we'd be happy to to help you with Pituitary World News and write uh, an article on on maybe getting some input and at least some interest for people to participate in the surveys or or participate in in uh, you know providing information on some thoughts. It's always interesting to get the sort of the crowd, you know, the crowd's opinion on, on what, what yes. it should be, because you learn a lot from it. Yeah. yeah. I did a little... You know, bit. Go ahead. Well, oh, so, say medicine's changed so much, we need to move beyond the names given to it by ancient Greek physicians and philosophers, right? Who tasted urine to see whether it was sweet or not, to decide how to call it, either insipidus or mellitus, you know. We're beyond that. We now know the protein structure of ADH. We need to to move to the to the present century uh, with this name, a again to to help patients. And this is really the first step, I think, because there's more than that education that physicians need to sort of learn to manage it in hospital patients. The 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 biggest mistake I see is that a patient will have maybe hyponatremia from drinking too much water or their doses get stacked upon one another because they're not allowing breakthrough. They get admitted to the hospital, they're fluid restricted, their vasopressin's held, and they start peeing and nobody lifts the fluid restriction or says drink to thirst. Their sodium goes to 160 and they've had a, a rapid change and they end up with something called central demyelination syndrome. I've seen about eight cases of that now of people who've had neurological injury because the physicians didn't know how to manage DI with hyponatremia as a consequence of treatment. And uh, that, that's probably, in my opinion, the most dangerous thing for a patient with diabetes insipidus is to get hyponatremic and then have a physician not know how to manage it and get them back on therapy before they get into trouble. And if, if, if I could leave people with one thing, it's you have to know how to do that yourself and tell the doctors what to do. And if a doctor's not listening, you have to find a doctor who will. You have to you have to talk to the nursing manager, the physician in chief of the hospital, whatever, to look out for yourself because this is an area where modern medicine is usually going to fail you unless you're being cared for by a pituitary endocrinologist. And we get we get posts pretty regularly from people that are in the hospital and that had hyponatremia. Either they had it and that's why they were admitted or they got it when they were in the hospital for something else. And they're just heartbreaking. And you you try to explain to them, you know, what they need to do and the chain of command and how you need to go up so quickly. And we're really trying to um, I'm working with some other people to try to develop some really tight guidelines on what you need to do in the various circumstances and that each of us with diabetes insipidus or ADH deficiency need to do is to learn as much as we can about the management so we can be advocates and we need to educate our family members and mm -hmm. other people so that they can be advocates too. We're trying to develop a um, folder that members can, t well, our members or whoever um, we can reach out to can take in to the hospital and say, look, this is what's going on. This is what needs to be done. And um, Professor Wass from um, Oxford recently did a little series of videos. And he said, when a patient with diabetes insipidus is in the hospital and they are not stable in terms of their sodium levels, they should be checked stat every four hours because it can change so quickly and so fast. And other literature that I've been reading say that when, when they are trying to compensate for hyponitremia, low blood sodium, um, that they need to give tiny doses of desmopressin to slow down the increase of, or the decrease 
of fluids so that you don't get that demyelination. Yeah, that's very critical. It's extremely important. And I like the idea of having written materials because people are at different educational levels and understanding and they may not be able to communicate to their physician. I've certainly seen people with diabetes insipidus that don't have an education or don't have an understanding and they, they can't communicate to their physicians how to manage this condition. So it's nice that you're creating some written materials or something or maybe a website link where they can say, go to this place, it'll tell you how to manage this condition for me. Um, I think that's a wonderful uh, uh, project for your group to be doing and participating in. So, oh, go ahead, Sonia. I mean, oh, uh, go ahead. Uh, no, no, I was just sorry. I got you, Sonia, because there's a, a comment in that in our text uh, in our text uh, chat room that from Sonia, who says that the Pituitary Foundation in the UK also has been looking at changing the name of diabetes insipidus, and she was wondering if you had consulted with them. Uh, yes, as a matter of fact, cool. I'm. Um, I communicate regularly with Pat McBride. She's the head of the patient <coughs> services department there. And so we've worked yeah. on a couple of different issues with them and we are in sync um, working with that. And we also do always recommend um, the Pituitary Foundation online. Um, they have marvelous resources as does the Pituitary World News. Um, has great resources for patients. Oh, the, the UK, the Pituitary Foundation in the UK is fantastic. They have some really amazing resources. Wonderful. They do. Uh, yeah. Anyway, so I interrupted. Well, back, back, yeah. to the, back to the name change. I think this is a marvelous idea, and I, I do encourage those who have diabetes and syphilis to start referring to it as uh, ADH deficiency also known as diabetes insipidus, maybe using both terms for a while. And you, you don't need to wait on a physician group or some body that has medical nomenclature to give an approval. Patients can start that effort as we talked about. You mentioned the grassroots efforts. Patients can, can do that. And I think that that will help a lot of physicians get directly to that point. Just just leaving out the term diabetes, you know, you, you talked before about uh, you know, people being asked how much insulin they're taking or whatever. I know of one patient who was admitted to the hospital for something totally unrelated, and they started doing finger stick glucoses, and the patient what? why are you checking my blood sugar on my finger? Well, you have diabetes. <laughs> so it's pretty bad yeah, when that kind. happens. Yeah, that's pretty bad when that happens. So, well, yeah, the, we, uh, and there is something that um, I found out when... Um, when you are about to have surgery, at least this is what I'm told, um, because you're under stress, there is potential for having some issues with um, glucose. Um, so having a finger stick prior to surgery may be appropriate in some circumstances. What do you think? <laughs> no, I think that's appropriate, especially if a patient's gonna receive high dose steroids, you'd want to know whether they have diabetes to begin with because a number of people who get stressed of steroids if they have hypopituitarism and get stressed of steroids for any kind of surgery, they can have glucose intolerance as a result of that. So it's reasonable to, to know what your sugar is, but uh, not, uh, not because they, you say you have diabetes insipidus. That's the point right. I was trying to make. I need to plug my computer in just a second. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> okay. So uh, while we wait for Pat to come back, I'm wondering, uh, oh, there she's back, so that was fast. So I'm wondering from a medical or from a, you know, the, from a uh, formal name change, let's say, you know, the patient groups and everybody from the grassroots have come up with a name, everybody loves it, or at least agreeable. What does it take to get it to the authorities, in, in quotes? <laughs> Do, have you researched that? Um, that's a good question. Um, I'm, I'm working with, I, because of my work with diabetes insipidus, I was asked to be the patient representative um, for an international study of patients with diabetes insipidus. Um, and so I've broached the topic with them and they're saying, well, you know, it really takes years and we have to take it to all these professional organizations and and I'm thinking that, um, and I don't know if this is possible, but I'm thinking about 
trying to write some articles and submitting them to some journals <laughs> mm -hmm. yeah. um, with some other with some professionals with a medical background so that we can give the patient perspective um, so I would need I would obviously need some help figuring out how to do that but I think that's one way to try to get into that um, stream of knowledge and yeah, the two the two large bodies that would be very helpful, I think, are Endocrine Society and the American Association of Clinical Endocrinologists. I, I think most of the time, ADH deficiency falls in the realm of endocrinologists, and then probably a proportion of people are taken care of by nephrologists, more so those with nephrogenic diabetes insipidus, which we could call ADH resistance, you know, to give a a modern day term to that disorder as well. They, they usually see nephrologists, but I've seen those patients too in my practice because they still have the, the polyuria, polydipsia, and need, need, need management. You know, so to me, it doesn't matter whether it's nephrogenic or neurogenic, um, uh, or you could say neurogenic ADH deficiency or nephrogenic ADH resistance, you know, would be two, two really good ways to sort of put it out there. So any... Go ahead. No, no, please, go ahead. Oh, I was going to say, any ideas of how we can um, get the medical community on board um, would be most helpful. <laughs> I'll ideas? certainly give some thought to that and try to think about uh, inroads into the, to the journals. I, I like your idea of writing a paper uh, and uh, putting it out there for publication in one or both of these societies. It probably needs to ultimately make its way there. I think patients going ahead with it now is the way to do it. Um, the only arena that I'm familiar with for sort of nomenclature is neuropathology and the World Health Organization. They've now tried to, the neuropathologists are trying to change the name of pituitary tumors to a pit net tumor instead of saying you have a pituitary adenoma. They want to call it a pituitary neuroendocrine tumor, which I don't like the phrase because neuroendocrine tumors, we know pituitary tumors are neuroendocrine tumors, but they behave very differently than neuroendocrine tumors that occur in other body tissues. But uh, the neuropathology is trying to call it a pit net tumor, and our pathologists have started using that term in the, in the pathology reports, and I roll my eyes about that. The other arena is uh, infectious diseases. And, and the old joke that I've always had with colleagues is that uh, what do older microbiologists do? It's they change the name of all the bacteria so only they know which one they're talking about. Because it's curious that all sorts of bacteria that were present when I was in training are still present, but their names are different. And I don't recognize that until I sort of realize, oh, we used to call this that. You know, and it's just all the classification and reclassification. So the infectious disease people are used to that approach of reclassification of certain things. And, um, and I suppose that uh, there might be some lessons learned there on how they were able to do that to sort of get the rest of the world to catch on to the, to the phraseology for good reason. You know, and uh, I think that that's the, the, the real foundation here is you have a good reason to change the name from diabetes insipidus to ADH deficiency. Another thing that I'm looking into, um, currently there are three efforts that I'm aware of to develop an easy monitor for determining blood sodium levels so that we can, um, patients can have handheld or uh, body sensors to be able to see if how dehydrated they are or if they're getting to be too um, overhydrated so that we can manage it a lot better because the symptoms what what I found is that patients that end up in the hospital with very low blood sodium ranging of 118 and lower um, frequently it's a very slow progression and they don't get the extreme symptoms that they do when it's a faster progression and so you can get you can be at risk without recognizing it. Um, so having something that you can do on a daily basis would be most helpful. Um, there is a group in South Korea who recently um, developed a method to measure blood sodium through saliva. Curious. And it has a correlation with the iStat machine in terms of 
accuracy. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm still trying to get in touch with those folks, but but I did read a couple of articles on that. Um, another one is a device that was made for um, athletes, and it's supposed to be measuring, um, I believe it's osmolarity through sweat. Mm-hmm. Osmolarity, excuse me, um, through sweat. And so that's being marketed, and I'm in touch with some of the research there. And currently, it's not considered to be a medical device, but they do see that in the future. Um, And the Raymond A. Woods Foundation, which is a foundation for, it's a support foundation for children with cancer, um, pituitary-related. And one of the issues that many of these children have is diabetes insipidus. And so the executive director there has started to look into researching how can you develop a home monitor, handheld home monitor that will be accepted by insurance companies um, that will take a couple drops of blood and will be easy to manage. So what we desperately need, we need the technology so that we can monitor our blood sodium levels at home and not have to go. Currently, what we have to do is we have to get an order from a doctor (coughs) then we have to make an appointment now at a lab so we can get a blood draw and then it takes a week sometimes to get the results back to find out what your blood sodium level was 10 days ago or a week ago it's ancient history by then yeah Yeah. practical and there's not a not an intervention that you can do to fix it. And if it was low, it's probably normal. If it was high, it's probably normal now anyway. For unless a patient still has ongoing symptoms, you know, uh, or it's low now, even though it was normal before. So the foundation you mentioned, uh, I know that they have these uh, testing devices for kids with what's called adipsic hypernatremia. It's sort of diabetes insipidus, and many of them have a loss of thirst, so they can't drink in response to thirst like most people with DI can. And I know they've provided this to people and it's been very useful. I think development of that technology uh, and putting it to more widespread use would be tremendous for people with DI and they could sell infinitely more gadgets, you know, to, to bring the price down. The more, the more of a product you have, the lower the price sure. could be. And insurance companies wouldn't balk at it then. But, uh, and I've seen a lot of people with, with uh, you know, even after pituitary surgery who develop post-operative hyponatremia and then have diabetes insipidus after that. There's so many different clinical uses for it, uh, and uh, we need that device to be able to put it in the hands of everybody with diabetes insipidus and a fair number of people with other conditions as well. When I've, what, when I've searched what are for... the numbers? Oh, sorry. When I've searched for hyponatremia, I found that um, there are an incredible number of hospitalizations for the elderly for having hyponatremia. And it seems to me that nursing homes and care facilities um, that need to monitor, it would be a great place for the monitors there as well. Yeah, I agree. Jorge, you were going to ask a I question. I was going to ask, uh, what, what are the numbers like? How many, how many people um, with diabetes and sepsis, what are the incidents uh, uh, in, the, in the U.S. or worldwide? Do we, do, or do we even have those numbers? The, the most recent that I've seen is one in 25,000. Um, but, but being diagnosed is really difficult. Finding the medications uh, can be really difficult depending upon where you live. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I've been texting, uh, chatting with a woman in the Philippines and she can't afford medication and she can't afford to see a doctor and she's got this like four gallon jug that she fills with ice every day and water and she stays around that jug all day because she has to um yeah you know and it's very disruptive but you know i feel very blessed lucky that i'm in the united states and i have access to medical care and physicians that can help to guide me along the way and figure out how to manage so yeah Dr. Blevins, in, in terms of pituitary patients, what's the percent? Or with that, I know you've written about it, but uh, with, yeah. di- with diabetes insipidus. It depends on the underlying diagnosis and the specific location of the lesion, uh, and uh, you know whether or not the pituitary stalk has to be sacrificed, mm. and then also the duration after surgery. If you look at the 
incidence of diabetes insipidus after pituitary surgery it varies from as low as about 7% in some studies to as high as 25% after pituitary operation. Uh, I can't remember what our numbers were. We were on the low side of that at UCSF. At, when I was on faculty at Vanderbilt, we were on the high side of that. I think it was like 19% or so. So that's a significant number of people. We do 260 pituitary operations a year, busiest program in the country. So we probably see, I don't know, 20 to 25 people a year who have diabetes insipidus. Fortunately, after pituitary surgery, and most people, it's temporary. Uh, but it is persistent in probably about three three to four percent of, of our patients um, who get it. And it's just because of the nature of their disease process or the type of surgery that they were required to have. Uh, and it would be unavoidable in that setting because we usually certainly try to avoid it. Um, and, and it can recover. Usually we tell people if you have it at six months, you're probably going to have it for life. But there are case reports in the literature of people who've had recovery of post-surgical diabetes insipidus as long as eight years after surgery. So that's another one of the reasons I like to have patients have breakthrough because the only way to know if you still need vasopressin is to miss it and see if you're going to pee a lot. And if you do, you still need it. <laughs> so it's a pretty straightforward, simple exercise. Um, but uh, that, that, that's the best numbers I can give you for, say, pituitary tumors. But craniopharyngioma is higher. Um, uh, certain you know, histiocytosis is pretty common pretty to have good, DI yeah. with that. So it varies depending on the diagnosis. Yeah. Sarcoidosis, it's pretty high as well. And, and the other thing about diabetes insipidus is that you, unlike a lot of medications where you're supposed to take the medication on a schedule, this is where diabetes mellitus and diabetes insipidus are so similar in that um, for diabetes mellitus, you take the insulin when you need it. In diabetes insipidus, you need to take the medication by your symptoms. If you take it like clockwork, then you're much more at risk for ending up with hyponatremia. So yeah. that's another aspect. Yeah, I couldn't it. agree more with that observation. I think that's exactly on the money. Well, this has been a fascinating uh, discussion, so so educational and, and, and some interesting information. So, Pat, where do if people are interested in learning more about the work that you're doing uh, and how to uh, participate in your group at Facebook? How do they how do they find you? We will put a link to it, by the way, on the article for the podcast for this program. But but why don't you tell us a little bit about that? Where do, where can they go? Um, well, we're the largest diabetes insipidus group on Facebook, <laughs> and if you put Great. in, yeah, and so if you put in diabetes insipidus, search for diabetes insipidus, you'll come up with got diabetes insipidus, which is our group. Um, we have 11 administrators. So like got milk. Pardon? Got, got milk. Yeah. Like the got milk. <laughs> uh, got diabetes yeah. insipidus, hey, come on yeah. in. So, um, and then they asked to join. We, we have administrators that um, we've tried to include people that have some of the different conditions that are associated with diabetes insipidus so that we can address various issues from the different perspectives that our members need. Um, we're far from perfect. We're a volunteer group, um, but we're doing what we can to help our feather, fellow oh, DIers. So. Well, that's tremendous. That's tremendous work. So anyway, well, I would yeah, and go ahead, Dr. Brennan. Yeah, and, and again, this is such diabetes and sleep is such an important topic for pituitary patients, and there's so much to learn. I'd love to, if you're interested, have your back pat so we can talk about some of the specific aspects of the survey that you've done, and then also some maybe sick day management and sort of what to do if you're in the hospital, what are the risks, etc. We can talk about some of the specific things that I've seen where people have gotten into trouble and how other people can avoid that because I think it's like anything in medicine you have to know about the potential for something to exist before you can sort of recognize it exists and many times patients are going to be the one recognizing the, the situation and not the healthcare provider so we need to have a dialogue and uh, and keep doing work in this arena through the our radio show just to to get the word out there to people absolutely thank you so much for the focus on this I really appreciate it and I always Always appreciate your helping out, Dr. Blevins. Thank you. Glad to be glad to be playing a role.
It's my pleasure. Thank you, Pat, for, for, for joining us. It was very, very interesting. And for our audience, tune in uh, next Thursday and tune in to Pituitary World News, that where you will announce uh, the subject of, uh, of next week's uh, uh, program. And uh, we'll see you then. So thank you so much for joining us. Dr. Blevins, thank you. We'll see you next week. Thank you. All right, take care. Thank you for joining us. You have been listening to Live Talk, an exclusive production from Pituitary World News. Pituitary World News is a nonprofit organization supported by a variety of organizations, foundations, and from people like you. We encourage you to participate by joining us to spread the word about pituitary disease. And if you'd like to donate, please go to pituitaryworldnews.org and click on the Donate button. Thank you, and thank you for listening.